This is Energy Voice Out Loud, leading the global energy conversation. I'm Alistair Thomas and welcome to our podcast in association with Renewable UK. This week I'm joined by our Africa editor Ed Reid and digital journalist Hamish Penman. And as far as the energy, the global energy conversation goes, and, and any conversation for that matter, there's only one place to go, really, and that is the horrific situation unfolding in Ukraine as Russia invades. Now, obviously, last week we spoke about commodity prices. We're an energy podcast, and we like to do that. Um, but clearly, uh, this is such a huge humanitarian issue, and we're actively seeing uh, war crimes being committed, and the discomforts around Commodity prices on on fuel prices uh, pales in comparison, frankly, to the the horrors being felt by the people of Ukraine. So I thought perhaps we could start there. Um, I spoke this week to Daria Shapovalova, who is the co-director of the Aberdeen University Energy Law Centre, but more importantly for these purposes is a Ukrainian uh, living here in Aberdeen who, like many, is is trying her best uh, in any way to help in any way she can. And as she said in an interview, there is a feeling of helplessness uh, to an extent. Uh, I think also a, a sense of pride about the, the strength that this nation is showing in the face of such an overwhelming force. So, uh, yeah, Daria spoke about her sister and her nieces having to leave the eastern city of Kharkiv on Thursday, around 5am Thursday uh, past, because of shelling near her home. And many of her friends, you know, living in basements, with their children, others having to go off to fight. And there's some really horrible footage this week um, of Freedom Square in Kharkiv being bombed, you know, civilians being killed. So this is the cultural centre, the second largest city in the country, and it's pretty horrible to see. And we'll talk a bit about the the energy uh, side of that in in just a few moments and some of the action that uh, Daria and some of her countrymen want to see done from an oil and gas perspective. But I mean, I think I think that bombing in Kharkiv was probably one of the more horrible images I've seen in reports this week. Guys, what what, what are your thoughts in terms of what you've seen so far and what stuck with you uh, in kind of the reports of the last week or so? I mean, yeah, just a, I think all of us kind of never th- thought or certainly hoped that we'd see conflict ber- break out in Europe again. And some of the, the photos and, and videos really have been harrowing. I think it's quite fascinating. And I don't mean that in a flippant way, but this is kind of almost the first major conflict to be almost beamed on social media there's mm. a, a lot of kind of people on the ground reporting things on twitter and on facebook and and certainly i can't really remember another um war that's for, for which that's been the case so that's been a, a rather kind of new a new facet to it but i think i mean there's been so many kind of yeah, awful videos that we, we've seen i think uh, something that really stood out for me was those protesting in russia against the uh, the invasion i think that was an incredibly um brave thing to do mm. because I see today that Putin's just criminalized um, calling for Russian sanctions and a lot of these people in St. Petersburg and Moscow they're probably going out on the streets in the full knowledge that they could be attacked by police they could be thrown in prison indefinitely um, and kind of those images show to, to me anyway that what is happening in Ukraine is really I don't know the result of of one man or a small group, it's not the fault of Ukraine, and it's certainly not the fault of the majority of the Russian people. And the, the, I suppose the sheer number of people who've died already, right? I mean, I think you know, even the, so, the, I saw something saying that the Russians have uh, acknowledged. I think it's they've reported four hundred ninety-eight of their soldiers have died. Obviously, there's a question around the accuracy of that. Possibly, they're undercounting, but it gives you a sense of the kind of toll that it's already taken on the Russian side. 
and obviously there is you know the the the, the numbers of Ukrainians who would have died also. So I think it's yeah. I think I, is I suppose that's the problem, isn't it? When we're in the energy bubble, we tend to see things uh, solely through uh, this sort of prism and. Uh, Every now and then, something kind of breaks through and sort of sort of grabs you by the uh, grabs you by the collar and says there is a, a human cost to this, mm-hmm. um, and I think we're we're certainly playing that seeing that play out. Yeah, we? and I think I think one of the things that that was also kind of circulating on on social media this week was. Uh, this Ukrainian journalist um, pressing Boris Johnson for a for a no fly zone, and you know that I think it's accepted. Indeed, uh, Daria, when I spoke to her, kind of accepted that that is a tough step to take in light of the the nuclear threat um, that Putin has 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 put forward, which is just absolutely unfathomable. But you know, so so the idea of an, a NATO country intervening in that sense is 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 very very uh, challenging to to see, but. There are other things that we could do, um, perhaps as the UK rather than as part of Europe, um, such as, you know, sanctioning the import of of Russian gas to the UK. I mean, we have, I think it's about 5% of our supply uh, comes from Russia, from the figures that I've seen. And obviously, you know, that could create some issues. We don't don't have storage capacity here. Um, You know, we could hurt consumers here more. Obviously, we are not um, immune to global gas prices. But um, yeah, I mean, anything we can do to isolate this uh, economy um, that is, you know, bearing down war crimes on Ukraine would seem to be the correct step to take. I wonder about the UK government's appetite for that, um, again, given prices. Um, But Clearly, it's a much easier step for the UK to take than people on the continent, uh, Germany, for example, pulling a country out of the out of the air. Um, but it seems to me that could be one thing that we could do. And I think it's 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 a really interesting point about 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 that sort of those sort of energy flows, isn't it? I mean, as we, as you say, we're not connected to Russia through pipelines, which is a point that sometimes does get lost in the kind of the conversation. So it's it's sort of energy shipments, uh, reshipping that sort of those sort of flows. I think I, th- I think the, the the really interesting thing is that we're already seeing a degree to which uh, people are unwilling to take Russian cargoes, whether that's LNG or Urals, uh, even without uh, kind of a government sanction. Companies, banks are unwilling to take that level of risk. I mean, I think that there's a there's a, there's a sort of a feeling that, that that Russian assets have become toxic, even even without that sort of that sort of sanction from on high. And I think. You know, we're already seeing that. I mean, I've seen some reports this week of, of an LNG cargo being redirected from the UK because it had Russian gas, and that is obviously kind of going to, going to try and find somewhere else. Obviously, the running costs for an LNG tanker are pretty high, so that's going to be quite a pressing problem for whoever's got that. And there have also been some quite interesting reports this week of um, traders trying to move... Uh, Cargoes of Urals, um, and, and and I think I saw something from uh, Traffic Euro offering uh, offering a, a discount of of Urals, uh, something like nineteen dollars discount to Brent, which is a sort of an unprecedented uh, price cut, and still being unable to 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 shift that cargo. So I think there's there's kind of a sense that you know events have moved on with or without uh, sort of word from on high. On that point as well, I mean it was kind of closer to home or for me and Alistair anyway there was obviously in, in Shetland last week there was the Russian ship that docked there people were pretty furious about that then a, a few days later a, a ship was due to dock at the the flotter terminal in Orkney to for an offload and uh, again people were 
not happy being part of being part of um, Russia's actions, I suppose, um, and started campaigning against it. And the ship, or Repsol Sinopec, eventually decided to divert the ship. And sanctions were being brought in at that point, but I think they were, well, from my reading of them, they were more ask than demand from the UK government not to, to take Russian cargo. But Alistair Carmichael, the local M- MP up there, he was quite quick to to voice this as a problem. And and yeah, I think the right, well, definitely the right solution was was. Well, came came out. It's it's interesting, isn't it? Because I suppose you know we we we've heard all these sort of declarations from companies talking about ESG, mm. and uh, it's it's quite and and this is I mean I suppose this is kind of a, a real interesting sort of manifestation of, of of how it might play out, the extent to which companies had to be aware of sort of social pressures, and I think you know typically we think of that particularly in the energy industry as being sort of around uh, carbon emissions. But is there also maybe a case to be to be made about you know ESG and 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 how companies should or should not interact with with regimes who we consider to be distasteful? I mean, I think you know we saw what was it a month ago in in Myanmar, uh, Total Energies I think pulled out of of Myanmar after being unable to uh, sort of sufficiently insulate itself from the regime there and and sort of some concerns about. Uh, local injustices, and 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 I suppose are we seeing something similar now in in Russia, where this sort of ESG pressure has really kind of come home to roost? And I think, you know, obviously, that's sort of see, you know seeing the number of declarations that companies have come out and said, you know, that, that ESG is important, that you know, sort of its social engagement, that governance, that these social issues are going to play a, a, a role in how they operate. Are we sort of finally perhaps seeing a sort of a manifestation? I am going to ask you to hold that thought before we go on a quick break, Ed, because we're going to talk about that in a second. Um, but I think I think very last, very very quickly, um, just one of the points I guess that Daria made um, was you know, over 140 countries have condemned this, and yet, as the international community, we seem to be powerless in a in a in a, in a real very real way to stop this quickly uh, and as you say uh, there's so many companies that are uh, and have been harking on about uh, the ESG considerations and and now yes I think that is very much uh, coming home to roost and we're going to talk about that we're going to talk about big oil and its exodus from Russia right after this Join me, Hamish Penman, online on Monday the 7th of March for the second in Energy Voices Tracking Transition series on wind power. Across all four of these virtual events, we're assessing the wind sector's development to date and investigating what needs to happen to maximise its potential. Beamed live to our audience from the UK Cabinet Office in Edinburgh, this second session focusing on the UK state of play will zero in on the UK's burgeoning wind sector and the rich export opportunities it presents. Find out more and register free at trackingwind.com to join our virtual audience and hear from our expert panel led by SSE, fresh from their recent success in the Scotland leasing rounds. 7th of March, trackingwind.com. I can't wait to see you there. So, uh, Hamish, we've, we've just uh, heard from from Ed and he was talking a bit about what uh, what Total been doing in, in, in light of exiting... Um, parts of Southeast Asia and and and, and Myanmar. So uh, obviously we have a, a totally, uh, is it fair to say a totally different situation? I'm not sure, but obviously we have seen a flurry of oil majors uh, exiting Russia in light of what's been going on in Ukraine in the last few days. Can you give us a rundown of what's been going on? Yes, I mean, uh, as a kind of quick overview of who's, who's done what, um, BP were the first to come out and say that they were going to be exiting Russia. They did that on the rather unhelpful time of Sunday afternoon. <laughs> um, 
but that was that was following a meeting with um with Quasi Quarting on the Friday. Um, and I think we'd all kind of love to have been a fly on the wall in that meeting because it would be really interesting to know that was was Quasi Quarting pushing against an open door? Was there any resistance? We'll probably never know, but it's quite an interesting point that this decision from BP did follow so quickly after that uh, that chat. Um, but yeah, no, it said it was going to exit its 19.75% holding in, in Rosneft, that's the state-owned oil company. And Chief Executive Bernard Looney was also kind of quite quick to... Well, he also condemned the attacks on Russia. Um, and he and Bob Dudley, who both held BP's um, positions on Rosneft boards, they are going to be leaving with um, immediate effect as well. And that kind of sparked a bit of a chain reaction. In, in within, I think, almost 48 hours, most of the um, majors with, with interest in Russia had made a call. So Equinor, only a few hours later, they decided that they were going to follow suits and um, exit the kind of joint venture businesses they had there, describing the situation as untenable. Then Shell followed suit again, um, divest from Russia and their 27.5% stake in the Sakhalin 2 liquefied um, gas facility, as well as its 50% stake as well, actually, in the Salin petroleum development. Um, Exxon, they've done the same. Uh, E&I have also done the same. The one that really kind of stands out at the moment in that they have they have done something. So let's not, before we kind of go in, but Total Energies, they've said they're not going to be investing in um, new projects or, get, or yeah, investing capital in new projects in Russia. They haven't gone as far to say whether they will be spinning off their 20% stake in, in Novatek. That's Russia's... Um, second largest, I think, gas producer. Um, and that is a decision that the, many feel they've not gone far enough there. Mm. And Shell's um, former Ukraine boss has really hit out at them, describing them as, I think, it was, was it Toothless, Alistair? You, you wrote that up yesterday morning. Toothless, useless, and highly disappointing. Uh, so he wasn't mincing his words. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, yeah, this uh, a Ukrainian. He was the, the, the former uh, deputy country uh, chair for Shell in Ukraine. Um, and I, th I think quite rightly, uh, I mean, yes, okay, they, they've said they're not going to invest in any new projects, but I mean, come on, guys. Um, it's It's a company that's, you know, Got a board member who's a, a Putin ally. It, it is Russia's second largest gas producer. Um, you know, I, I think, I think, uh, in the circumstances of what, what's going on, it is perfectly fair for uh, him, uh, Alexei Tatarenko, to condemn uh, Total in the way that that that, that he has. I, I can understand the sentiment totally. Um, and look, um, uh, again, I'll, I'll go back to the interview I had with uh, Daria uh, yesterday, uh, and I, I did put that to her. Um, and you know, I guess the. The thing she came back with was yes, absolutely. They should be taking all the steps they can. I mean, and, and then they kind of she kind of said, and this is going back to the point you made, uh, Ed. Um, she kind of said, perhaps it's naive of us to expect that um, you know a company whose um, main goal it is a business after all uh, to is to make returns for shareholders. Um, perhaps it's naive to think that a company like that will will take this right step, but it doesn't mean we shouldn't try to make them. And I think. Well, actually, you know, I think if you know if, if a if a BP and and a, and a Shell to a lesser extent and uh, an Equinor and an Exxon can take those steps, then I, I think that does put a lot of pressure on on Total Energies um, to do so as well. So uh, so yeah, it comes into that question of to what extent of ESG is that societal 
point, you know, really coming home to roost. I- I'll ask you to pick up your thoughts on that, Ed, having asked you to park them earlier. Sure, yeah, yeah. I mean, so, I, I mean, I think it's 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 a way for them to sort of demonstrate their their ESG you know kind of commitment isn't it i mean i think you know when you look at uh, total which obviously has those big uh, the the big investments both in novatech and in those big lng projects yamal and arctic lng too i mean these are sort of serious sort of bil- multi billion dollar investments that will obviously play like a really critical role in total's future mm. right i mean i think it really kind of plays into all of those things that we talk about, you know, transition, you know, how gas is going to play a role in decarbonizing the world, particularly in terms of replacing Chinese coal demand. A lot of that's going to be coming from those Novatech projects in, in, the, in the north of Russia. And it's that thing. I mean, I, I mean, I, I don't know how you, how, you, how you play those things off, but it's, uh, it does seem like a, like a, like a real opportunity for, for, for sort of an ESG forward uh, approach. I mean, I think there was a, there was a, I mean, I'm, I think that it's quite interesting, isn't it? There, there seem to have been sort of two thrusts. I mean, I think it feels like everyone has kind of had an opinion on, on the, the, the invasion of Ukraine, right? These, or these, these big energy investors. So there's the sort of the leading front, which is the sort of Shell and BP who said, essentially we're going to write off this stake i mean it'll be interesting to see how that works mm. out right does that mean they're just handing these shares back to rosneft or gazprom and they're handing them to the russian state are they going to be i don't know should they perhaps be donated to a ukrainian charity so the funds could go to uh you know humanitarian intervention in ukraine that would be a good solution perhaps i mean we just don't know at the moment it'd be interesting to see how that plays out and then there's the sort of the second stream of people who are saying we're against invasions you know we don't like war but we're not quite sure how we're going to play this so we're going to review our holdings so i think you know total's kind of taken that that line and then these uh you know there were a couple of traders yesterday who said, said something similar so traffic Eura and uh glencore so they're going to review their holdings and it, again it's quite an interesting thing so so traffic Eura was has got a big stake in a in a in a, in a sort of a project company with rosneft called uh, vostok oil and this was really going to be part of their drive to cut emissions from future production of oil, right? So this was going to be there was they were they were saying that this is going to make a significant impact on the on the the carbon intensity of the of the oil that they trade in future, and it's a serious investment. I think from Traffic Euro, it was something like one and a half billion euros, uh, and and it's a sort of a package deal with some with some with some banks. So there was serious amounts of cash being talked about. But it's that question of how do you balance that idea of saving the world from, you know, climate change, from the fact that, you know, ice caps are melting, that, you know, that, that, that you know, that the climate is, you know, on, on, on the turn versus that sort of near term human rights issue of Ukraine. And I mean, I don't, I don't know. I, I, I mean, I think, you know, clearly there's a business incentive as, as, as your, uh, your interviewee said, right? Yeah. There is, you know, it's, it's hard for companies to walk away from these assured profits, right? Where they've made these investments, they are acting as companies have classically acted. Yeah. But now in this world where these companies talk about net zero, they talk about ESG, they talk about their kind of, uh, their responsibilities essentially to people in the world, what takes preeminence and, and how do they balance these issues? I think this is a question that's probably uh, beyond my pay grade. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's interesting though, isn't it? I mean, let's let's take that. Uh, and it is, you are quite right. They're, they're obviously every decision of this kind of size is going to have a knock-on impact on a whole kind of cluster of issues. So I, I guess it's easy to be quick in, in judgment, but, you know, I guess, I guess given the the horrors we're seeing, and 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 as people have, have kind of pointed out, that you know, oil and gas industry is 
to a very large extent, the cash cow of the Russian economy. Um, so, you know, I, I can certainly see the argument for um, uh, some pressure. But just, just to take BP as an example there, I mean, we had, um, yeah, with the, the this this figure, a potential up to $25 billion eye-watering impairments. And we had some analysis through uh, Susanna Streeter from Hargreaves Lansdowne, a write-down of this magnitude, likely to limit the extent to which BP can continue to accelerate its transition towards renewables. Costs money, you know? So how, yeah, I mean, how, how is that going to play off in their coming results in terms of their investment into renewables? And it's also, you know, I think very acutely, as, as I'm sure we'll go on to talk about uh, and continue to talk about, it's kind of concentrating minds about the need to find alternative sources to this reliance on Russian oil. Uh, and we've, you know, we've seen um, pledges from the likes of Germany trying to ramp up renewable energy as fast as possible. But it's it's not an easy question to answer in terms of uh, how, you know, exiting one of the world's largest oil and gas markets, um, you know, how does that play out in terms of your investments and using that oil and gas cash to um, fuel uh, your investment in renewables and, and clean energies? I think that maybe you're right. Maybe that is something that gets lost in the near term, um, but sure enough, will perhaps be picked up more and more um, as we as we go on and this uh, crisis um, unfolds. So, can I just, uh, can I can I just make one last point on that? I mean, I think course. it's it's really interesting seeing BP right, and, and obviously, as you say, that sort of massive sort of twenty five billion charge is really significant. Obviously, and we well, although we don't quite know to what extent that's going to play out. Right, if they do manage to make a sale. It will be under stress terms, but we don't quite know whether that's going to be the entire. That's kind of a, a possibly a, a worst case scenario mm. is, is my is my is my is my thought. But I think it's really striking for BP because BP had such a terrible time in Russia in the early two thousands. Right, this was a time when they were in a in a joint venture called Tianqi BP, and Bob Dudley, who then became went on to become the the head of of, of uh, BP entirely. You know, he there was a point when he he had to go into hiding because he was being persecuted by the uh, the the Russian security services, the FSB. Oh yeah, he went somewhere somewhere in Eastern Europe. He went, you know, and there were all these rumors about him being, you know, sort of poisoned by the by the KGB and stuff. And I remember it was these headlines to yeah. the extent that you know, obviously, despite that, despite these highly personal attacks on the the you know Bob Dudley, who was obviously a high ranking official, despite that, they still stuck with Russia. And now the idea that, you know, that, that they can walk away, that they can afford to walk away, I think is really interesting. Total obviously doesn't feel that it can afford to walk away. But BP, for whatever reasons, it does. And I think that's, that's significant. Uh, absolutely. I think we're, we're going to talk about that just uh, until, uh, until the end of time <laughs> if, if we don't stop. But let's, let's take a, a short break and, and a pivot uh, next. Next up, we'll take a closer look at gas on the continent and the latest on the, the now halted plans for Nord Stream 2. Energy Voice presents Net Zero Workforce, a hybrid event at the Chester Hotel Aberdeen on the 29th of March 2022. Energy is going through seismic change. This will be driven by people, attracting new talent and reskilling the current workforce. The Net Zero Workforce event will help draw the roadmap for change, asking how the industry can inspire the next generation of energy leaders and help today's energy workers to adapt to a post-transition landscape. Join us to explore what is required for the Net Zero Workforce to emerge and thrive. For in-person tickets and free virtual registration, visit netzeroworkforce.com. Okay, so Ed, we've we've seen Nord Stream 2 halted and 
now we've seen more companies kind of, as, as, as you were alluding to earlier, kind of reviewing their positions in, in Russia and indeed that project as well. Maybe to just talk a bit about that and uh, I suppose explain, if you would, what Nord Stream 2 is for those that, that don't know. Sure. So Nord Stream 2 was the, the, the next big hope, wasn't it, for, uh, for energy supplies from, from Russia into, um, in, into, into Europe and especially Germany, right? I mean, I think it's, it's something like 55 BCM per year of gas. So a really significant amount. And I suppose for, for Russia, Nord Stream was significant because it allowed them to bypass Ukraine. Uh, and obviously, Russia and Ukraine have had historic issues. Uh, on on gas transit um, and and the extent to which those got on. I mean, there have been times in the past when gas connections have been cut off and not for very long, you know, a a matter of days, uh, but it's clearly been a point of contention. So essentially, Russia came up with the idea of of bypassing Ukraine. They don't therefore have to rely on Ukraine for these sort of critical pipeline connections to their key customers. Nord Stream 2 has always been controversial. Uh, well, so as as was Nord Stream, and it's one of those things that that the US in particular has has raised concerns about, and has sporadically sort of tried to threaten sanctions against. These came to a head uh, in sort of late February as Russia invaded Ukraine, and, and the US finally said, "Look, we're going to no- we're going to sanction the company Nord Stream to." Uh, which has put that company into, I believe, I mean, there have been reports that it's going into insolvency. It's certainly uh, fired all of its employees it, because of this 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 US sanctions hammer. Mm-hmm. As a result, um, it looks like, I mean, there, there, it, it seems there's a real chance that despite this pipeline being essentially finished, being essentially ready to go, it may never be used. So uh, Vintershall Deer has uh, this week and OMV have both said that they're essentially sort of, you know, writing off their investments in that pipeline. I think it's about 10 billion euros to give you a sense of perspective that the investment that went into that big pipeline. And Shell said that uh, a little bit earlier, just after BP came out with an announcement. Shell said it was moving out of Sakhalin 2 and Nord Stream. So this is a significant move in terms of um, the future flows of Russian gas into Europe, which obviously, which is, one of the most striking things about the conflict is despite the fact that, you know, Russian tanks are shelling Ukrainian cities, Russian missiles are hitting Ukrainian buildings, gas continues to flow. By and large, there doesn't seem to have been an interruption. And in, 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 mm. in many senses, there seems to actually have been an increase in, in, in those flows. Obviously, Russia getting paid handsomely for those supplies from Germany, which is obviously a, a political problem for Germany. And I think, you know, as a result, we've seen this this, this fascinating move from, 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 from Berlin, where they have suddenly seemed to have, you know, had a sort of a Damascene moment where suddenly they can see that maybe this reliance on, on, on Russian gas isn't the solution. So there have been some really interesting noises there about their nuclear fleet. Obviously, mm. the, Germany was thinking was was planning on, on on essentially cutting off its 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 nuclear fleet in entirety uh, by I believe this year, and there have been some 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 sort of noises about maybe that was not the right move. Um, 
whatever way, uh, Germany has now kind of come out with new commitments about renewable energy. It now says it wants to be 100% renewable energy by 2035, um, which is uh, obviously a, a fairly significant move. I mean, obviously, Germany incredibly industrialized, high energy demand. So that's going to be a really significant move. And also, as part of that, um, they're now talking much more favorably about LNG terminals. So the ability to secure uh, gas cargoes from elsewhere in the world. Obviously, the US is going to be a prime example. The US this year will become the largest exporter of LNG in the world. Um, Qatar is in the midst of, of, a, of a new expansion. It's really ramping up its capacity. And then obviously, you know, with this talk about LNG, new countries will be thinking about it. You know, we'll be thinking about East Africa, Mozambique, Tanzania will again be working on those projects. Papua New Guinea, Australia. So, I mean, it's it's the the ways in which Russia has become essentially and effectively overnight a pariah state mm. has caused this incredibly sort of seismic shift in uh, European energy considerations. It, it's really interesting to consider where do they turn next? And the answer overwhelmingly seems to be uh, east uh, to, to China. And it's going to be interesting to see that develop. To what extent are we going to see more um, Russian energy be diverted there? And are going to find customers there? Uh, yeah, very interesting to see uh, the, the German Greens, who uh, I think many would argue created much of that gas dependence in the first place, uh, reconsidering uh, their veto on nuclear power will be interesting to see how that plays out. But I, I guess ultimately, and as you say, Ed, with, with Russia becoming a pariah and, and, and this skyrocketing in oil and gas prices, we've never really seen, I think it's fair enough, at least in my, my lifetime, never really seen such a massive threat to people's ability to pay their bills. Not because they won't, but but they can't. You know, and, and we talked a bit about this last week, but you know, we are seeing Oil and particularly gas prices just skyrocket right now. I mean, how we're going to tackle that, I don't know. Um, but it, it, it is um, a question of, of, of balancing up some some very tough choices, political choices. Um, and that's not just uh, here in, in the UK, but certainly in, in Germany and elsewhere um, in, in, in Europe. Um, so I suppose just maybe to, to talk a little bit about uh, the North Sea factor as well, because uh, we can't resist that. Um, uh, Hamish, we, we, we did see this week um, some companies kind of um, moving away from Gazprom, for example. We've had contracts to sell gas to Gazprom. Um, not a sizable portion of our kind of domestic supply, but in terms of literally uh, IOG, um, they had a deal to sell to sell their produce from the North Sea Saturn Banks project. That's now getting... They're looking for other customers. Yeah, from the Southwark and the uh, the Elgood field specifically. I think Blythe's um, the Blythe field is in a different. Blythe's BP is Blythe's yeah, the BP. Right. Yeah, so it's just um, just from those two, and they're still. Um, I think the ones on the process of producing one still being spudded. I kind of lose my track with Saturn Banks. There seems to be an update every other <laughs> week. Um, but yeah, no, IOG has now cancelled those contracts with Gazprom. Um, it's. CEO Andrew Hockey said that they like like all the other CEOs have just said it's completely untenable at the moment. Um, I think that's quite an interesting thing in many ways because so much of the uh, focus has been on gas flowing from Russia to Europe. This is one going the other way in some regards. So it's interesting to see even that take has been um, has been well, is is a focus as well. Um, but I think in in the North Sea generally, I mean, you, you did that piece there doesn't seem to be 
people aren't envisaging too much of a disruption, I suppose. I think the big thing now will be for companies is will they now have more of a social license to go ahead with these new projects? Will will the likes of Rosebank, will they have a new focus Campbell. now? That, well, I wasn't going to say it. I thought we could maybe get through a week. Just <laughs> let it rest, uh, damn it. <laughs> but will these now have more... Maybe the I don't whether the public backing was ever really against it generally is, a, is another point. But will these projects now have more legs to go ahead as we try to decrease our dependence on Russian oil and gas? You'd like to think yes, and I, I think the UK government is trying to fast track those six projects, those specifically gas projects. So I think in terms of trying to get these um, these tiebacks and the like up and running quickly, I think that must now be the focus for well for UK energy policy and for and for North Sea operators. Yeah. They need to sort out storage. We closed down our last storage facility and therefore we have to export some of our produced uh, gas. You know, if we had some of that in, in supply um, ready to go when we need it, then we might be in a better a better position. But it's kind of an un, under underserved issue that we need to do a bit more on. Um, so I think, you know, this has been a pretty somber um, podcast, quite rightly, guys. I think, I think a good way to kind of round off it probably isn't an appropriate way to round off, but I mean, I, I, just looking at the, the Ukrainian president Vladimir Zelensky, have you have you have you seen this guy? Like, I saw the 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 speech he made um, last week and, and followed him recently. I thought, oh wow, this guy is incredible. He must be like a a soldier, a war you know, a war hero. And then found out he's a comedian, comedian, actor, president. Um, just incredible. I don't know how he walks around with balls that size, but just absolutely just. Incredible stuff uh, to see. Have you have you seen any of of that? Have you seen him with Strictly Come Dancing and that? He, <laughs> seek these videos out. My, 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 certainly, my, my my wife is among uh, many uh, who have suddenly become entirely enamoured of him. So ah. yes, I have heard a lot about the, the <laughs> charm. Oh, that, that, that guy. That <laughs> guy. Oh dear. All right. Uh, okay, well, we will park things uh, there for now, guys. Uh, and so that is it for this latest episode of Energy Voice Out Loud. Thanks, Ed and Hamish, for joining me. I've been Alistair Thomas, and thank you for listening. Out Loud is the podcast from Energy Voice, leading the global energy conversation. Bookmark and subscribe to energyvoice.com Sign up to our newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter for expert analysis and insight right across the energy sector. Subscribe to Out Loud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do encourage colleagues and friends to listen to Out Loud too. If you've enjoyed it, leaving a rating or review, especially on Apple Podcasts, helps others discover it too. Thank you.